So we're in uh, John 8. And we're going to... Now the next bit of John 8 is, is one whole passage. In fact, we're still in the same bit that we were in, in terms of timeline, when we were in John chapter 7, way back before Easter. Um, you remember there, at the beginning of John chapter 7, uh, it begins, well maybe you won't remember, so let me just say, um, when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so your disciples may see the works you do. But Jesus said, uh, my time is not yet here. Uh, and so he said, you go to the festival, um, but I'm not going uh, yet. But then he did go up to the festival. And then we looked at, in chapter 7, uh, all the controversies about, is he coming? Is he not? Who is he? Who do people say he is? Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were the chief priests, they were twitchy about who this Jesus might be. The ordinary people, some of them believed that he was the Messiah. Some of them thought he was the prophet. Some people just didn't know. Opinion was divided. And so the whole of chapter 7, we looked at all of the kind of whispering voices and the disputes. The big question that's in all the Gospels, and it's the big question that comes to you and me down through 2,000 years of history, who do you say that I am? And I know that uh, the vast majority of you who are here would say the Messiah, you are the Son of God. But um, maybe there's even just one person here who's wrestling still with that question. Sorry, I need, it's in your best interest that I have my clock out in front of me, okay? <laughs> All right. So then we read to the end of chapter 7, and then there's that little section that, that we looked at last week, the woman who was caught in adultery and dragged and made an example of in front of everybody, in front of the chief priests, but in front of the group that Jesus was teaching. And we looked at that yesterday, and we sat it alongside um, Jesus' reinstatement of Peter and reflected on a woman uh, whose uh, disgrace, if you like, whose... Who's, uh, uh, whose shame was on the outside and visible for everybody. Well, certainly was by the time she was dragged in front of a crowd. And then Peter, who carried an inner shame, uh, a regret, uh, a, a need for forgiveness on the inside because of his uh, failure to uh, honor his word to stand by Jesus. And so when we come to chapter 8, verse 12, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, part 2. This is just continued Okay, so we haven't actually finished. Jesus is still at the Feast of Tabernacles, and this is the next section, okay? <clears throat> so let's hear from, we're going to read verse 12 to 30, because it's too big a section to do it in one go. So we'll do this this week, and then we'll have another look at it next week. And then we will get on to chapter 9 and the healing of a man who was born blind. Okay, chapter 8, verse 12 through to verse 30. Let's hear God's word to us today. <clears throat> When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. 
You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. Amen. So just a little recap of the Feast of Tabernacles. For those of you that weren't here, well, quite a few weeks ago now when we thought about this. Feast of Tabernacles is an autumn, early autumn festival. Well, um, proper autumn, actually. It's in October this year in in Israel. Um, And it's one of the three major festivals. There are other festivals, but the three major ones in the Jewish calendar, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Passover, when the Jewish people remember how God brought them out of Egypt uh, by the... uh, preserving their lives or the firstborn of their households by putting the blood of a lamb sacrificed per household on the lintels and the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over the houses where there was blood on the lintels and doorposts. Pentecost, um, which is uh, a first fruits harvest thanksgiving, so it's a celebration of the first, uh, the first fruits. Now, I'm used to... Um, used to have a garden, used to plant potatoes, and I used to uh, go in the shop and buy the seed potatoes, and there was kind of, there's early potatoes, and then there's early main crop, and then there's main crop, or something like that. There's three different kinds. So the early ones, uh, that's the ones you get the first return on. So Pentecost was the first fruits of the harvest. And then Tabernacles um, was a celebration of Uh, God's uh, protection of his people in the wilderness when they wandered for 40 years after the exodus, and then they came into the promised land. And the Jewish name for it is Sukkot. And Sukkot is the feminine plural of sukkah, and a sukkah is a little booth, a tabernacle. 
a little tent, we would call it, I suppose. Um, And so it's the Feast of Tents, the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, And for seven days, they would celebrate, and it would double as a kind of Thanksgiving, uh, harvest Thanksgiving as well, because it was in the autumn. All of the crops had been gathered in, the harvest was in. But as a reminder to the people not to rely on their full storehouses or their barns with plenty, but to remember how God provided for them when they traveled through the wilderness, they have this uh, Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is is marked by uh, certain key moments. And two of the key moments, um, well, let me just give you all three. One was that they would go out of the city and turn and face uh, the direction that they had come from and remember where they had come from when they traveled out of the promised land and turn their backs to the land that they had come from and face again uh, the place where God had brought them. The second part was that every day they would go down to the Pool of Siloam, and we're going to come to the Pool of Siloam in chapter 9, and we'd go, they would go, the, the priests would go down and they would draw vessels of water and they would carry it from the pool of Siloam into the temple courts, and they would pour it out. It was a massive, spectacular pouring out, a libation is the posh word for it, of water before the Lord, uh, remembering how God made water flow out of the rock in the wilderness. And the third part, because they Uh, were to remember how God led them with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. So at the end of every day, seven days in the Feast of Tabernacles, they would have a seven-day celebration. They would live in little booths, little tents uh, outside to remember life in the wilderness, life on the road. They would live in tents and eat their meals there. Uh, And then uh, they would have these celebrations And every evening of the seven days of tabernacles, the priests, I like this bit, they would would take the the cast-off underwear and turbans of the priests, the stuff that had worn out, and they would fashion it into wicks, uh, soak it in oil. Um, So there you go. That's, you know, usually I would use an old t-shirt for stuff like that, but they used, anyway, they're the kind of priests old underwear and the turbans. Uh, Why waste? So they would uh, turn that and use that as wicks and uh, soak it in oil. And then every evening there were four massive menorahs, like massive lamps in the temple forecourts, which they would light. And so there was this blaze of light every evening uh, that was part of the celebration. And these four huge lamps were lit in the court of the women, which meant that women and men, Jewish women and men, could be there, which kind of gave rise to, uh, it allowed them to kind of have a party, a celebration uh, every evening. But it wasn't a rave. (laughs) The description says, men of piety and good works. In the Mishnah, it says, men of piety and good works danced, holding torches in their hands and singing songs and praises. And they would dance holding the torches. You know, you thought some of your firework escapades were edgy. Uh, I've never been to, is it Orkney? Where's the one where they swing the massive big balls of fire? Where is it? 
Sterling? I can't remember. Stonehaven. Right, okay. So think something like that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then never mind. But just imagine that uh, all of these priests are holding a torch in their hand. There's four huge lamps blazing in the courts, and the priests are kind of putting on uh, sort of, I suppose it's a kind of early interpretative dance, <laughs> but they're dancing with these torches. And I would imagine that there was some pretty cool dancing. Uh, and so you've got this spectacular light show, which the priests are putting on every evening in tabernacles, and there's great celebration. Harvest Thanksgiving, a remembrance of God's deliverance. Tabernacles is the only one of the festivals that is explicitly uh, held out as an invitation to the nations of the world. So the, the nations of the world, the Gentile nations are invited to, uh, to come to tabernacles. And to this day, I mean, I've known lots of Christians who have passionately and enthusiastically gone to Jerusalem for tabernacles because it's absolutely immense and tremendous fun, a tremendous celebration uh, of the goodness of God. Okay, why am I telling you all that? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. At a festival where the world was invited to be there. At a festival, the culmination of which each evening was a blaze of light to remember the pillar of fire by which God guided his people through the wilderness years as they fled from slavery in Egypt. And Jesus, in this environment and atmosphere of joy and celebration, declared to the people, you see all of this light and this fire? You see how the nations are represented? You see how you remember the fire when God led you by a pillar of fire through the wilderness? I am the light of the world. That was me then, and this is me now. And the light that I will bring into you and into your lives is the fulfillment of what the other things were only a sign of. The pillar of fire was a sign of God's direction. It was a sign of God's protection. It was a sign of God's presence. It was a sign of God's power. But it was only a sign. And the fire, the, the torches that were lit in the temple were a picture, a sign of the light of God, the presence of God, the deliverance of God, the power of God. And Jesus declared, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I spent yesterday over at Queen's Park Baptist Church because the International Justice Mission was holding its annual uh, national conference and prayer day. And we were thinking a little bit in the context of that day about light and darkness. I, I'm becoming increasingly passionate about the International Justice Mission. And we've had Andy Bevan of, the I, of IJM speak here before, but many of you weren't there when he did. He's going to come back later on in the year. I hope you get passionate about IGM. IGM exists to free people around the world who are enslaved. There was an artist there yesterday who, like Ian, our artist, was, was uh, well, it was mostly kind of chalks and acrylics. He was using mixed medium. But over the course of the day, he produced this amazing, beautiful painting picture 
of a mother and her child. And uh, the story is, is moving. We only heard a little bit of the story, and I have to confess I didn't write the names down, and they're not easy names to pronounce, of the mother and child. But this mother had been indentured into slavery to pay off, get this, a 12-pound debt three years previously. So she'd been doing hard labor to pay off a 12-pound debt, which she could never pay. And she was heavily pregnant, uh, and uh, two months or a month before the birth of her child, she got in touch with IGM, tremendously courageous thing for her, a woman and a woman in her circumstances to do, and she explained her situation and explained that she was effectively enslaved. And so IGM acted on her behalf, and they uh, went to check out her story and the situations. They raised the, the, the slavery that she was experiencing um, with, uh, with her slave masters and the local police, the local authorities. Long story short, she got uh, freed from captivity because of IJM. And the picture and the little video story, which we didn't see but they've made to tell the story, is called Born Free <laughs> because her child was born free. Her child would otherwise have been born a slave. And her child was born free. And we talked about light in the darkness. You know, you and I are called in Jesus' name and by the power and authority of Jesus to be light in the darkness. Because there are many, many dark situations and places. Later on in the afternoon, uh, one of the IGM workers from Kenya, from Nairobi in Kenya, who had a background in social work, and God called him into IGM. And uh, he was describing the, 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 the moving and upsetting story of a man called Willie, a lawyer, an uh, African who worked with them and was part of their legal team. And uh, taxi driver Joseph, uh, who uh, was a regular driver for IGM, um, and another young guy called, uh, I think it was Jehoshaphat. He had a biblical name. Was it Jehoshaphat? Uh, we'll call him that anyway for the time being. But describe the situation how uh, Jehoshaphat had been the victim of uh, police corruption because bribery is huge over there. And uh, he was driving, uh, doing a little taxi business on a, on a moped, um, as many people do, but he got stopped by a policeman, uh, told that he was going to be charged with something, I don't know what. Uh, if he didn't come up with a bribe, he said, I haven't got any money, I can't pay the bribe. And so the policeman shot him through the hand. Um, and because uh, of that, he then went and, and uh, reported it, and that got him into more difficulties. And so IGM got involved. Uh, and, and the outcome of the story is not a happy one like the other one, because Willie, who's the lawyer, and Joseph, who is the, uh, who is the driver, and Jehoshaphat, the three of them ended up being taken to a police station and incarcerated there, and then nobody had any contact with them, and nobody could get through. A message was sent to uh, Joseph's wife, but she didn't answer the phone because it was an unknown number. Did da did da did da Six days or two weeks or whatever later, they find the bodies of all three of them. And so, this world is a dark place. It's a dark place, and yet we are sent to be light in it. And so, there was a happy symbolism for the Jewish people, but a symbolism that represented the light of God to overcome the darkness of this world. The light of God 
the power of God to overcome and bring healing and hope and rescue for his people first and foremost when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And we know that slavery in Egypt was not a happy experience. And we know that when Jesus was preaching and teaching in the temple courts, the greatest anxiety and concern that was filling the hearts of the people of Israel was the fact that they were under occupation and the Romans were not known for their softly, softly approach. Hope, light, life, redemption, all come against a background and a backdrop of darkness. And so let us never imagine, as Jesus never does, that believing in Him will somehow render us safe or immune from harm. We have the privilege of partnering with the light and hearing the joyous stories of a woman set free and a child born free rather than a slave, but over against them the reality that sometimes our brothers and sisters pay the ultimate price. And we know that from Sri Lanka, right, just a few weeks ago, that sometimes there's the ultimate price to be paid. I, I, I'm probably imagining this context kind of all wrong, but, you know, Jesus in this context of this lighting of these lamps and these celebrations, of tremendous joy and dancing and exuberance. I think it sounds great. It sounds like a party I want to be at. And, and Jesus makes this bold declaration in the midst of it all, which to us who hear it just think, yes, amen. You are the light of the world, the source of the fire that uh, shepherded and escorted the people of Israel. You are the giver of light and hope in a world of darkness and hopelessness. And then we have these jobsworth Pharisees <laughs> saying, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. And I just want to say, shut up. But you see, the world is full of nitpicking people. And that's an immature response, okay? Well, let me just say, I know that that's an immature response. <laughs> but it's a frustrated response. And I think Jesus got frustrated a lot of the time. Got frustrated because here were these Pharisees who purported to know the law of God inside down, inside out, upside down, and back to front. They purported to be experts and masters in understanding the mind and the will of God and unpicking the law of God. And they are legalists par excellence. Apologies to the lawyers in the midst. But they were nitpicking legalists so blinded by their own self-importance and need to judge and be the ones to decide who was right and who was wrong that they couldn't actually discern the presence of the living God incarnate in Jesus Christ right in front of them because the power of their own self-appointed mandate to judge and be the judges 
of right and wrong, going all the way back, as I've said before, to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where we took upon ourselves a mandate we were never created to bear, which is to be the judges between good and evil. We were created to eat from the fruit of the tree of life, to live in dependence on the Father, to live on the basis of His provision, to live in that nurturing parent-child relationship where He would provide what was needed, but instead we were tempted to be like God and make the decisions. We were tempted to be like God and decide what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what's true and what's false, what's up and what's down. And so this world, all of this world, is a broken, hurting place because of that curse. Wars start because different sides say, this is right, no, this is right. Arguments start because I'm right and you're wrong. Division comes in because we see things differently. We were created to be one people in relationship with the Father, in unbroken relationship with the Father, and therefore in unbroken relationship with one another. But because we've taken upon ourselves the mantle of decision, of judgment, of right and wrong, then we lose connection with the Father, and each of us tries to be little gods in our own world. And so the essence of this, and, and, and this passage in John, you know, it's, it's not the most straightforward, but at its heart, what the Pharisees are doing is trying to decide if Jesus is right or wrong, if his testimony is valid or not valid. And Jesus is saying, you know, the problem here is you just don't know the Father. You just don't know the Father, or the love of the Father. You think you act for Him, you think you speak for Him, but actually you don't know Him. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one, even though He is fit to judge, because Jesus came to live in relationship with the Father You see, judgment will never lead you to act or behave like the Father. Yes, there will be a judgment, the end of time. But you see, just now, we live in the age of grace. We live in the age of grace, by which I mean that there is an open invitation from the cross of Christ and the gospel of God's mercy and salvation, that He has taken, poured out all His judgment on His Son in order that He might extend grace, in order that He might extend mercy. Jesus couldn't even have a conversation with the Pharisees that they would understand because they didn't know who He was or where he'd come from. And they were so full of their own judgments and certainties 
about what was good and evil, what was right and wrong, that they didn't have any sense or knowledge of Jesus and of why it was that they, if they would just believe and receive, would enter into a quality of relationship that would free them from the interminable burden of their judgments. God has invited and called you to live in and out of the love of the Father. It is not a place of judgment, it's a place of grace. And when you go out and about, you and I on a daily basis see people and we judge them on the train, on the bus, in the street. We judge their clothes, we judge their appearance, we judge their conduct, we judge their values, we judge their opinions, we judge their politics. If we're honest, we sit in judgment a lot of the time. Well, I do. Maybe it's just me and you've got a really bad minister. But I don't think I'm alone. But the reality is that we live not because we've been judged and passed the test. We live because God, who could very easily judge us <laughs> and find us spectacularly wanting on just about every front, extends instead to us grace. He does not count our sins against us for the sake of Jesus. He invites you to a relationship where as a child restored to relationship with the Father, you feed on, suckle from, if you want that image, the love and the grace and the mercy of God who does not count your sins against you and who in turn sends you to live not by judgment but by grace not by your decisions of what is right and wrong and true and false. And yes, there are situations where we have to do that, especially if you're a lawyer. <laughs> but it's one thing to apply the law. It's another thing to apply your own judgments. And so Jesus began to warn them that he was going shortly and that they would not be able to follow him and they didn't understand what he was talking about because they were so firmly rooted in this earth and this world that they had no concept of what is yet to be. Ruth and I have a, a very good friend or had a very good friend, Aileen, who was part of our last congregation and I got a wee message on Easter Sunday to say that she had been diagnosed with cancer. But then I found out this past week that uh, it was much more aggressive and faster than uh, anybody had thought. And actually, from uh, just over the course of three weeks, Aileen's condition uh, deteriorated very rapidly, and she died. She died on Thursday at 12 noon. Well, I say she died. She went to be with the Lord. 
because a number of years there's a, an evangelist that some of you may have heard of his name, Moses Donaldson. Uh, I never heard him speak, but Moses Donaldson uh, was holding evangelistic meetings and Aileen, who I didn't know at the time, went along and gave her life to Jesus. Aileen was a, a retired primary school teacher or she'd stopped being a primary school teacher. And then she came to know Jesus. And then she got involved in the church where I was minister before. And uh, Aileen was just delightful. I wish you could meet Aileen. You will meet Aileen. But Aileen uh, was about five foot eight. Well, maybe smaller than that. She wasn't five foot eight at all. She was five foot one. She was five foot one and a half, I think. She was tiny. But she had the, she had the heart and the faith of a child. She was up to her... Uh, armpits in every bit of children's work and Sunday school and the kids club that we ran every week. She helped me set up a youth project in the community. Uh, she was masses of fun. She was not a, a deeper, profound theological thinker, but she loved the Lord and she loved life and she started a tennis club for kids and she loved amateur dramatics and so on. And as her husband held her hand the night before she died, she said to him, can I go yet? Can I go now? <laughs> and right up to the last, she didn't lose her faith. And all she wanted to do was to go and be with Jesus. Now, you see, that's, for me, a picture of how I want to go, <laughs> of how I think any of us, and what Jesus was talking about here. Because the Pharisees couldn't see it because they couldn't believe it. And because they couldn't see and know who Jesus was, they were going to die in their sins because they did not have access by faith to the grace of God, which would give them the gift of life. Aileen, I know, absolutely loved life, but she was all the more excited about the life to come. And Jesus, in this passage, made the distinction, talking to the Pharisees, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Solemn words. You see, we will never get it right by our own efforts. The Pharisees were the uh, strivers par excellence after righteousness. And yet they'd chosen the wrong way. And you will never, by striving after the right, find a way. Because Jesus' invitation is to believe in the one that the Father has sent. To know that after the lifting up of the Son of Man on the cross at Calvary, that he was indeed the one. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. And likewise, the one who calls you to believe in his Son has not left you. He is with you. He has not left you alone. Jesus is the light of the world, and in this world is much darkness. In this world is much brokenness and pain. 
and you have received the light, not because you've uh, tried and got it right, but because God has given you the gift of faith in his Son, and that by knowing him, you are the light in the darkness. Imperfect, full of shortcomings, full of failings, but it's the grace of God and the gift of faith at work in you that is his seal and guarantee so that you and I one day will hopefully hold someone else's hand and say, can I go now? Because I want to. But in the meantime, you're sent to be light in the darkness. You're sent to pray in the darkness for the light to come. You're sent to know and believe that despite the fact you will not get it right, Jesus is able to let light shine through you into the darkest corners of the world. Never doubt that. And whatever you do beyond the walls of this place, go and be the light. And let his light shine in the darkness in this world and let his light into the dark places in your life if dark places there be. Because light has never been overcome by darkness. Let's pray together.